Well, and I mean, in, in terms of international organizations, like you mentioned, the Paris Agreement, um, with the you know everything happening with the agreement with Rawls and also our interactions during 2020 with the World Health Organization, um, what do you guys think this might mean for you know our reputation on the global platform, the you know foreign relations that we've tried to cultivate and kind of almost severed uh, pretty immediately into presidency? Um. The United States or or these like generally or, or how, how do you mean? I think in terms of like the way that this election might affect those, you know, on the global platform, of course, this might, you know, cause the ripple that makes the wave, um, maybe something kind of along those lines. So here's where I'll totally yield to my esteemed colleague who knows much more about these things that, than I do. And I'll just quickly say, like, my, my impression as someone who doesn't study these things is, um, you know, the, the, the U.S. And, and the U.K. and these large Western countries, uh, um, you know, when they have these really shocking populist-esque, you know, election outcomes, I think that sends a strong signal to the rest of the world about um, like how people in those countries are feeling towards these organizations. I mean, I can say like in the U.S., these organizations are just not very salient. I mean, as an empirical matter, like most voters don't even know what the World Health Organization is or does. Okay, um, but you know, thinking about something like Brexit, you know, there were there was a lot of uh, antipathy towards towards the EU and all these misperceptions about you know the EU is ripping us off and that's not right and we need to be more less internationalized, like every country for its own that kind of mentality. So I think, you know, if, if, if Trump gets reelected and, and we'll see what happens post Brexit, but I think those are, those are clear signals about how people are feeling towards those sorts of institutions. I, I think that's correct. I think that um, the underlying dynamic here is um, that for the past 70 years, since the Second World War, the West has been hard at work at setting up transnational institutions First, as part of the Cold War, trying to defeat the Soviet Union, but more than anything, trying to set up a world that believes in democracy, that believes in liberalism, that believes in free trade. This has been very much a establishment kind of elite project, as DJ said, in the United States, but also in Europe. I, Europe has a, probably a little bit more sympathy for the United Nations, but only a little bit more, right? I mean, these large organizations are very far away from the reality of people, but it has been an establishment project to create a 21st century that is free, according to Western standards, liberal, democratic, capitalist, etc. And now with the decline in international power, um, these Western countries are starting to notice that those transnational organizations are no longer within their control. They can no longer act with it what they want to do. So they've created a monster, Frankenstein, that is now doing its own thing. China, India, other countries are taking over. And the United States, is panicked about that. And the United Kingdom is panicked about that because they believe that those were their babies who were gonna help them dominate a world made in their own image. And that image, that Western image is completely collapsing. And so therefore the usefulness of these transnational organizations is also collapsing from London's perspective, from Washington's perspective. Um, then on, on top of that, there, the, the underlying ideology of those institutions was very Anglo-Saxon, right? I mean, I'm not saying that Germany and France and Japan have not had any influence, but the thinking behind large transnational organizations has been Anglo-Saxon, has been built on Anglo-Saxon philosophy, has been built on the axis between London and Washington. Um, 
And that is a perspective on the world that is not very good at dealing with the challenges that we previously mentioned. Um, and then at a practical level, what you see in countries is that, hey, if we have a world in which tribalism is becoming a thing, we no longer care really about a vision, but we care about tribal structures. What better tribalism than us locals versus anonymous large organizations that nobody controls, right? That was the whole Brexit debate. Nobody controls the European Union, which is patently false. There's a lot of democratic structures be behind the European Union, but the narrative was, hey, these are unelected bureaucrats that make decisions for England and England should be ruled by England, right? That kind of uh, attitude. So tribalism in this post-ideological world is thriving and the easiest type of tribalism is to rant about anonymous organizations. I mean, and I guess it's also in the fact that we've seen countries, well, I mean, I'm, we've seen countries essentially get away with going against essentially the very values that the UN and all these transnational organizations are founded upon. I mean, after Brexit, you know, there were talks of other countries leaving. And now we have in Hungary, I mean, Orban is essentially a dictator. And the EU has, you know, during the whole pandemic, has, said that they will impose sanctions, that they'll do this, that they'll do that. And he's still there. Or in Belarus, where there's the protests right now, because I mean, I haven't really been following it super well. But um, I mean, we start we start to see a lot of these different countries act against the standard US, you know, liberal hegemon, which originally were what created the UN and what founded before that the League of Nations and to a very large extent the EU. Um, and we're starting to see those same trends, those same values essentially being questioned as if, you know, people are starting opposed to what Fukuyama said uh, when the wall fell, like Boulder, you talked about. I mean, this is very much not the end of history and democracy is a lot dirty you see that now i think it, it, it bears rem remembering that it's the founding fathers themselves the u.s founding fathers i think it was adams but i'm not completely sure about that uh who actually wrote extensively about that u.s democracy in about 250 years would collapse and end in bloodshed <laughs> they they predicted that because they said democracy is not this deterministic path it cannot last forever because at some point it's going to eat itself from the inside out, right? And um, here we are 250 years later, and it's not looking all that good for democracy. I think one of the main mistakes that um, leadership and, and, and establishment media intellectuals have made is the assumption that there's something deterministic about democracy, that in the end, every human being will always be driven towards democracy. And that is not the case at all. If you want democracy, you have to work for that and you have to make that choice. There is no deterministic path that will mean that at some point humanity will practice at all. Absolutely. Um, right. So, um, you know, like to, to give a concrete example, right, like uh, in the United States right now, if someone is a you know strong conservative Republican who likes a lot of the policy things that Trump is doing, but is also strongly, you know, small D democratic, like committed to democratic norms, you know, that voter is in a really tough spot, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's, it's a two party system. Are you going to vote against, you know, Trump who, even though you don't like all the anti-democratic stuff, 
the policy, you like the people he's put on the Supreme Court, you like all these things. And are you going to, you know, say no to that and vote for this guy, Joe Biden, who's going to, you know, who you're going to disagree with 90% of the time. Um, and, you know, this is something we see in, in lots of countries, like, you know, um, whether it's partisanship or some kind of other strongly held group identity, like if you have a politician who you really, really like for some reason, but who has these anti-democratic tendencies, are you going to go along or are you going to, are you going to be willing to incur some cost and, and vote for somebody who maybe doesn't perfectly represent your interests, but is going to at least sustain, you know, these democratic institutions? And it's a, a lot of times the answer is no, they're not right. They're going to they're going to hold their nose and say, you know, vote for Trump. Yeah. And that's also that you that you mentioned, uh, DJ, that is in the difficult spots. Um, in the United States, there are probably more of them than in Europe, but maybe still have some deeply held beliefs about freedom or death, right? Freedom is, in the end, the, the end goal. And if I can't have freedom, then I'd rather, you know, just give up. Um, but most people, even in the United States, but certainly in the rest of the Western world, actually um, have a set of priorities that are not necessarily democratic. I mean, it's nice if democracy can provide for them. If democracy is the path towards them having a good job, a good house, all that's brilliant. They're all for democracy, but they don't inherently, there's no, there's no gene in us that tells us that we need to be free politically. Um, and, and so that is very important to remember that, right? That, that, that there are priorities that go way beyond an intellectual conversation about whether democracy is morally the, the, the best methods to achieve happiness or whatever. Um, the reality is that people care about practical things on a day-to-day -day basis. And if those practical things are not being supplied to them, then they will reject the system that is ruling them. Right. And I think that in terms of, um, I mean, I don't even know where to begin with the implications that all this brings for the next four years. But um, oh God, I, I know that we wanted to at some point touch on the, I don't know, the economic effects that all of this might have in the next coming years. I know that that's a, a difficult segue, but I think that it might be interesting to touch on the ideas that all these, um, you know, you know, tax topics that came up in the debates, all of these things that are very relevant worldwide and, you know, seeing how the next four years of American institution affects the rest of the world and how everyone in America is affected, obviously, but it's so much more than that. Um, just wondering, do you guys have any um, I mean, not projections per se, but maybe some thoughts about the future, maybe some critical thinking we could consider. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I see, you know, radically different paths depending on who wins, frankly. Um, so, you know, what, well, maybe the, maybe before I get into that, I mean, what will happen is at some point the COVID pandemic will end and the, and the economy will recover, right? We don't know how quickly that'll happen. We don't know when that'll happen, but, you know, economies are very cyclical. And so whoever happens to be in office when we defeat this pandemic and the economy comes roaring back, will claim credit and say, you know, this is all because of my policies, right? Um, so that, that, that's a given, like that'll happen regardless of, of who wins. Um, in terms of like the economic policy, like what we're going to get depending on on uh, who wins, right? So, so you know, Donald Trump, you know, had um, total unified Republican control of government for, for his first two years. So, 
you know, that's what we're going to get if he, if he wins. Like, so, um, uh, well, I, I guess what I should say is that's like his ideal. Like that's what he got when he could get whatever he could. Right. So we're going to get uh, large tax cuts, large increases in spending, which he'll say that, you know, he's not for spending increases. And he'll say that I care very much about deficits. But, you know, the modern Republican Party doesn't care about deficits. They only care about deficits when Democrats are in the White House. When they're, Republicans are in the White House, they spend as much as Democrats do, if not more, which, you know, I happen to think is actually good for the economy. Government spending, you know, does a lot of good things, increases um, uh, employment, wages, all these things. Um, so that's what Trump's going to do. Um, Biden would spend a lot too. So Biden has adopted a lot of Bernie's like really, you know, large scale social proposals around um, uh, met, like what's the catchphrase that he's using now? Medicare, if you want it, I think is the phrase now, um, you know, higher minimum wage, uh, more social spending, all those sorts of things. Um, he's not going to give tax cuts to really wealthy people like Trump would, but he'll give, you know, large scale, middle class, lower class tax cuts. Um, so, you know, the effects of those things, I think, ha depend really critically on like where in the COVID schedule we are. So, you know, it's it's kind of hard in the abstract, like not knowing, you know, hopefully when the COVID crisis ends, like not knowing when that ends um, is going to affect uh, uh, the overall effect of these economic policies that either candidate implements. But that's that's kind of my take. Um. So to, to enhance or to sort of stimulate debate a little bit, I don't see radically different paths. I see slightly different paths between the two, simply because of what I mentioned previously, is that Trump, in the end, policy-wise, he has no ideology. He has no vision. He doesn't care except for day-to-day -day politics. And therefore, the Republican Party is much more in control of actual legislation than we think, right? We, we put Trump's face on it, but in the end, it is the Republicans who are making policy for Trump in most cases. Now, it is not unlikely, by the way, that if uh, Trump wins, that the Senate flips and that the Democratic Party will actually be able to rein in the extremes. I think uh, Trump has actually disappointed the right-wing populists. Um, I've been kind of intrigued lately to read some, you know, that there's a right-wing populist movement within the Republican Party that is not libertarian, that actually is about, hey, this is about defending the poor, in many ways, whites, American rights. There are some racist undertones very quickly there. Um, and they actually demand much higher spending than Trump has given them. Um, Trump has actually been reined in by the Republican Party when it comes to spending. Um, so the, 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 the different paths are Biden will probably spend more than Trump, but not by that much. Um, Biden will be a little bit more to the center. I, I, I don't want to call Biden left because he's definitely not left. I mean, his track record, he is decades of legislation, um, and he's clearly not a left-wing leaning uh, person. Um, I think the main difference uh, is whether Trump will do something completely insane, um, right? I mean, if, if, if Trump actually, and this is more probably in a foreign policy level than at a domestic level, because he sort of, he's done the damage at the domestic level, but in foreign policy, it is possible for Trump to to start a war unnecessarily if all of a sudden he does. It's possible for Trump to um, antagonize China to such an extent that um, the whole international system becomes weakened. Those kinds of things would not be likely under a Biden presidency, right? So from a stability perspective, Biden is absolutely the better choice. Uh, from a policy perspective, the differences won't be as big. 
which is why um, the Democrats are very, should be very worried if they lose this election, because that would be a complete rejection of democratic centrism, right? It would be a complete rejection of the Democrats trying to find that center ground with Hillary Clinton, uh, with Biden, with Obama in the last four years of his presidency, especially. Um, and they would have to have some serious talks among themselves of what kind of vision they present for the country. I mean, wasn't it quite bipartisan, though, on both sides, this kind of not disdain, but sort of being wary of China right now? Um, it seemed to be, at least, at least from the debates, it seemed to be that both candidates were very much, they disagreed on how, you know, to keep uh, China in check. I think anyone would especially when you're on those two sides of the extreme. Um, but both of them were quite, quite honest about uh, their beliefs against China. And then with regards to the taxes, I mean, I, I got this number from the debate. So don't, I mean, I think Harris brought it up. So don't quote me on it. But it was, uh, there was a currently a two billion deficit was because of the tax uh, tax plan that the what's it called? the Trump administration essentially implemented, and I'm I mean that the way that in the last four years, like you said, Balder, that um, he hasn't been helping, let's say, the poor white American in the Midwest. He's been helping the ultra rich, top one percent in Wall Street. Uh, I was reading the other day actually, like an article about. Um, how essentially Trump got away with the just paying 750 in taxes. And there is a whole platform and a whole different, um, there's so many different options that all of these guys can get, like legally can get away with tax evasion, essentially. And what Biden seems to be doing right now is to be trying to level the playing field, which is something that I think Trump originally trying to tackle and then kind of forgot on the way. Um, on taxes, I mean, this, you know, this can get uh, complicated and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll dramatically lose listeners if we, if we go too, too much into <laughs> detail, but um, yeah, I mean, so, so um, one thing that Democrats and Republicans have argued about, you know, throughout history and will continue to argue about in the future is do really expensive tax cuts pay for themselves, right? Um, so Mateo, you said, you know, the tax cut, I think it's one point something trillion dollars was the total cost of the Trump Republican tax cuts, right? And, and you know, Republicans will say, yeah, you know, that's an initial cost, but um, you know, that's going to stimulate so much ac economic activity that it's going to generate more tax revenue and they're going to end up paying for themselves. Right. Um, now, you know, I'll try to be as objective. I'll try to be as objective as possible here. Right. That has never happened. In, yeah, um, no, never. it's never <laughs> literally never happened that these expensive tax cuts pay for themselves. I mean, I'm sure theoretically possible in some parallel universe that'll happen at some point, but it you know, hasn't happened before and it ain't going to happen this time either. Um, now, Biden, you know, to Balder's point, I mean, Biden's going to cut people's taxes, right? He's going to cut middle class and lower class people's taxes, just like Trump did, frankly. What he's not going to do is give tax cuts to large corporations, businesses and wealthy people. 
And, you know, there's no right or wrong answer to that. That's a, you know, ideological debate. Um, uh, so, you know, probably what would end up happening is the Biden, any, any additional tax cuts that Biden implements are going to be less expensive than what Trump did because they won't have the huge tax cuts for wealthy and business for wealthy people, and business owners and that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the two parties argue about taxes constantly in every election and, uh, you know, what, what actually ends up happening is going to depend on um, who controls Congress, not only who controls the, the White House, right? Uh, I'm not even sure if it's, uh, if, if, in, if it's purely ideological, though, because it's amazing to me that the United States, um, which is in many ways a more radical version of Europe, or, you know, when it comes to taxation, at least for your historical standards, right? I mean, I'm just dealing with how the world has worked historically. The United States is much more low taxes, uh, much less government investment, much less infrastructure, those kinds of things. It's amazing to me that in 2020, with the world that we're seeing right now, that the debate is about cutting more taxes for the super wealthy or not cutting taxes, rather than increasing taxes by 20% on the top, you know, on the top 1%. Just, and, and I'm not sure if that is purely ideological, that is not about some kind of socialist utopia, that is about economic efficiency. See, it is simply not efficient to have a society that goes too far in creating an economic upper class, that money is badly spent, that money doesn't lead to um, uh, the whole society benefiting. At some point, bridges in the United States are going to collapse. At some point, schools are simply no longer teaching their children properly. Uh, and that has all kinds of economic consequences, right? If we were talking about Switzerland, then it's more about ideology. Does Switzerland want to go left-wing or does it want to go right-wing? But in the United States, it's gone so to the, to the libertarian side of things mm. that the fact that the debate is about more of that or just stopping here is shocking to me as an outsider. Right. It's, it's like we're having the wrong conversation, essentially. We should be having a completely different one, but we've somehow gotten off topic so far that... We're not even considering the right questions to begin with anymore. Exactly. Absolutely. This has to do with just the cheapening of the discourse kind of in the United States, right? So, I mean, what would happen as a practical matter, right? If Biden on the, in the next presidential debate went out and said, you know, our schools are, are failing, our infrastructure is declining, we need a large scale tax increase, right? He'd get killed in the media, right? It would just be socialist, 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 socialist the whole time. And you know, and, and yeah, that's that's not a good thing, but I'm not saying that's right, but that that's just kind of the level of the discourse right now. But right? for for a European outsider, that is astounding how how anyone would ever accuse Biden of, yeah, right? of being um, yeah uh, like ridiculous. I'm not exactly enthusiastic about that. United States had top marginal tax rates of 80, 90 percent. You know, in the early 20th century. Yeah, I mean. These, these existed. I mean, these existed, but we've, you know, right. the Republicans have won this argument. I mean, we're, we're having, we're, we're debating, to Baldur's point, we're debating like gradations of the Republican position instead of Democratic versus Republican position, right? Absolutely. Um, in terms of like us voting in this 2020 election, kind of how we can, you know, be more well-informed as those, you know, being the voters, us being voters. I think it's like really important. Like, obviously there are certain things that we need to be informed on in order to vote. Better to be educated than not, of course, in situations like these. But 
Um, I know that we were wondering um, whether you guys, this is more of a personal thought, do you think that the generation currently or the generations that are eligible to vote now in 2020 are more well-informed compared to past generations or not? And do you think that is a good thing? Is, is it not? Depending on your answer, I suppose, but thoughts? Talk about this a little bit in my public opinion class. I mean, we can we can measure this pretty reliably. I mean, we can at, we can at, you know just give people these pop quiz style survey questions, and you give similar questions over time, and you see has political knowledge increased or not over time. Um, the answer is no. Like like objectively, <laughs> the answer is no. Um, I, but I don't think it has as much to do with education because for at the same time that levels of political knowledge have been pretty flat levels of formal education have been increasing steadily, not only in the United States, but across the West in the last few decades. And so sometimes people who study this for a living refer to this as the education paradox, because, you know, the expectation is, you know, more formal education means that people will know more about politics and public affairs, um, but that's not what we've seen. And so there has to be something, it's not just cognitive resources. It's not just formal education. It has to be something else that's preventing people from becoming, you know, as knowledgeable as they could be. Um, so it has to be something like motivation. It has to be something like, you know, people just in lots of Western countries, for whatever reason, they don't perceive a benefit of investing all this time and effort to read the newspaper every day, become informed, all this stuff. Um, now that's all, you know, empirical, like that's, you know, factually like how stuff is going right now. Normatively, the question is, you know, is that good? Like, should people know more? Um, and, you know, I think, like everyone else, I would say yes, you know, people should know more. Um, but, the, you know, the, there's a real question of, of if they knew more, would they make different decisions, right? Like if they knew more, would we see less support for populist parties? Would we see um, less support for the, you know, these far right, you know, parties and candidates we're seeing in lots of countries? Um, I tend to think so, but, you know, that's pretty speculative. I don't have any clear evidence that that's the case. I don't know if Balder feels differently, maybe. You know, I, my intuitive answer um, to that last question would be also yes, for the simple reason that populist parties get away with overly simplistic answers and education helps you to see through overly simplistic answers, right? I mean, education allows you to understand that the world is a complex place. And if someone just shouts, hey, we uh, need to stop immigration and then everything will get better, then there should be alarm bells ringing. But if you don't have the general world knowledge, you don't understand that, that immigration is actually typically a positive thing for a country um, at all kinds of levels, right? So um, as a general rule, my answer intuitively would be yes. On top of what you said before, which is clearly true, uh, as you stated, um, what we know from psychological study after psychological study is that this new generation um, the new group of students and younger people are amazing at quickly um, dealing with information, very good at multitasking, very quickly at very good at quickly understanding an issue and responding to that while at the same time listening to music and at the same time what. Previous generations are terrible at that, but that means that our brains right now are being trained to quickly absorb new information, but not actually analyze that information. So we know from psychological studies that previous generations are much better at simply sitting under a tree and thinking about the issues we're facing. And literally, right, I as a child, as a teenager, there were no mobile phones, there was no internet. I went to the forest and I would sit under a tree reading books, 
for a whole afternoon. And that would allow my brain to absorb certain thoughts. And now the new generation doesn't give itself the time to actually do that. And that has very long-term consequences for the way that they look at the world and what they demand from political leadership. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. I mean, with the rise, I don't know if you guys have seen the, the new Netflix documentary. It's called The Social Dilemma. But they watch it. You'll, you'll love it, Balder, I swear. Um, but and it, it's very like interesting the, I, because I, I haven't watched it, but you're like the fifth student who has recommended oh, this to you me. Guys so I have to watch this. At some point, I need it's to watch insane. This. <laughs> but at the end, sort of, they talk about, um, you know, Cambridge Analytica. They talk about Facebook, the spread of misinformation and all this kind of stuff. And they explain how the algorithm works. And I think that there, there's a lot to be said about, you know, students or the young younger generation right now and i guess to a certain extent even this rise in polarization it comes from there it's because basically how it works is if you read a specific not even like it it'll detect how long it takes you to finish the page on a specific article with a specific agenda and based on that they will keep spamming you that sort of information maybe you even read i don't know something from fox news against immigration which might have been even true but in the next few days and this is exponential so you'll start getting a lot more the algorithm will recognize that and will just start bombarding you with conspiracy theories right-wing blogs podcasts as much stuff as they can to get essentially to get monetization from ads but on the other side of the spectrum you start to just see all this information and just assume it as true and in reality this could be anything like you could be reading something from a a no one who's living i don't know in his mom's basement and just happened to think hey let's write a funny article or something well actually in terms of fake news and um actually specifically uh the algorithms used in facebook in communications we talk about this during freshman year it was pretty soon after the elections had happened. And a professor of mine actually went through Facebook with us and showed us like in settings, you can disable the features and you can see what categories you've been grouped into. And so when I went to my profile of like my filters that had been added, it was like young in the demographic of 18 to 25, um, American from the West Coast, um, like of like white ethnicity. Um, and it had all this information knowing that I was looking for a more liberal agenda. It was presenting me with those. And so after disabling those, I saw that I consumed a lot more of equal media, but in terms of, you know, the ability to do so, it, it takes once again, a well-informed electorate to make those adjustments and, you know, make that conscious filtering of fake news, maybe fact-checking that kind of conscientious work that's dedicated to educating yourself for this kind of thing. In, in many ways, what um, uh, what these algorithms do is it's sort of the same as populist parties. They appeal to our animalistic instincts, right? They appeal to our natural way of being. And in many ways, intellectualism, not just simply knowing a lot, but thinking about the issues, dealing with that is a way to go to override our animalistic instincts, to understand that we have to think about things and we can't just go with our hearts. Algorithms they aim for a heart. Populists aim for a heart. Um, intellectualism aims for something that is in many ways unnatural to humanity, right? Because it's unnatural to animals and we are in the end animals. 
And so in many ways, we psychologically are reverting back to a more natural state. That's not necessarily a good thing, but that is what's happening. I think um, sometimes people forget that these social media platforms that we all spend so much time on, at their core, they're algorithms. Right. These are algorithms that are optimized to give you content that the algorithm knows you want to see. Right. And this is something that I think gets lost in a lot of like popular commentary around polarization. And there's all this discussion of, you know, people self-select into media. So Republicans only watch Fox, Democrats only watch MSNBC. And that's that's true to an extent. I don't mean to minimize that. But what's also true is that even if you don't consciously self-select in that way, algorithms do it for you, right? So you don't have to make a decision to go to Fox, right? If the Facebook algorithm knows that you're a conservative leaning person, you're gonna get a lot of heavily conservative content and same for, same for liberal people. Um, and we've never, had, we've never had platforms or institutions in our society that operate that way. These are very new. And so this raises a lot of interesting policy questions about how, you know, how these sorts of platforms should be governed, for example. Should the government have a role in, you know, regulating Twitter and Facebook like it's a public utility, right? Like it's a, the company that provides your electricity or provides your internet or provide, right? Um, you know, on the one hand, there, you know, there's free speech. There's the First Amendment in the U.S. context. There's free speech protections in, in lots and lots and lots of countries. So, you know, people get nervous when you infringe on that. But on the other hand, you know, it's a new world. It's a new world of algorithms pushing us. Um, inundating us with information that's that's consistent with what we already believe, and so um, you know, governments and policymakers need to think about how to address those those challenges. We are absolutely in unknown territory, and 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 you're absolutely right there, and and that means that we need to be extremely careful with just assuming that everything will fall in place, right? Um, often when 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 I talk about these things people say yeah but every generation is worried about change and every generation says before everything was better i'm not saying that before everything was better but we cannot deny that the 21st century is radically different from anything that we've seen in the past and we just do not know what the long-term effects will be of that which also should have us worried about someone like let's say mark zuckerberg who was clearly very good at setting up facebook i'm sure a very intelligent young man who um very well uh, very clearly saw a gap in the market and, and did a great job in developing his company. He's not necessarily the person who can actually assess the long-term implications of Facebook's actions, right? And yet he has all this power because of something that requires other qualifications, namely setting up a business, uh, making a business a success, which is a completely different exercise than understanding the long-term dynamics that rule society. I mean, perfectly said. Um, so here, just to finish off uh, the episode, I thought it'd be nice to hear some predictions. We won't hold you to it, but because uh, <laughs> I mean, I was wrong in my, the last three elections that I've been able to either see, follow, or even vote in. I've always been wrong, so I'm definitely not exactly an expert. Um, but yeah, no, I just want to hear, we would just like to hear sort of your predictions and why, essentially. Same caveat. So I, you know, nominally study, you know, study these things for a living. And I was, I was very wrong in 2016. 
And not only that, but during the Democratic primary, I remember being in some event on campus and like sitting next to one of my uh, Henry Pasco, one of my colleagues and saying it was like some can't remember if like a primary debate had just happened or some some event had just happened. And, and I said, Biden's done. Like, I don't know who, you know, I don't know who's I don't know who's going to be the nominee. I just know that it's not going to be Biden. So, <laughs> so so those are those are my two caveats. So I'm over to um, with, with that being said, like, you know, I, I try to. I try to check my bias and I try to say, okay, what if the polls are wrong, even as much as they were in 2016? What if they were, what if they're even a little more wrong this time than they were last time? And even trying to do that, I just, it's really hard for me to envision a scenario where Trump, Trump wins. Um, I think he's very unlikely to win. Um, I, you know, if I, if I had to guess now, I think Biden will win a, um, you know, decisive electoral college victory. I don't think it's, it's going to be a landslide. I don't believe it's going to be one of these scenarios where he wins states like Texas and Georgia and Montana. And I, you know, I don't think that's going to happen. But I think he will win by as much or more than Obama won in 2008, which is a which is a really decisive victory. So if I have to pick with the caveat that I'm almost always wrong, um, that's that's my prediction. Yeah, I mean. I mean, basically the same spot. I mean, I was absolutely wrong about 2016. I mean, I just couldn't wrap my head around the thought that anyone would vote for Trump. I mean, it just it just didn't make any sense to me. Um, the same, I was completely wrong with Brexit. I couldn't imagine a world where the UK would actually vote to leave the European Union. Um, obviously, the I mean, like I said before, the the the, the reasonable guess is that Biden will win. I'm not sure by how much of a margin i mean and i would love to be the cool kid who says no trump is going to win and then there's a small chance mm. that i will be right and you know that i you know you can repeat this video over and over again look the baller was brilliant because he, he knew that trump would win no the, the 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 reasonable prediction is biden is going to win um the only caveat that i would add there is that um elections are much more random on the day itself than we believe they are and and Let's say that it's a 70, 30 percent. I'm making up those numbers, but 70 percent chance that Biden will win. Well, 30 percent is still a pretty big chance that Trump could win, right? Um, that was roughly the situation with Clinton, by the way. Uh, opinion people like uh, Nate Silver, they predicted 70 percent chance that Hillary Clinton will win or would win. Well, that means that there's a 30 percent chance that that won't happen. Um, moreover, and this is also important to remember. It's perfectly reasonable sometimes to be wrong, right? If you lived in the 15th century, it was perfectly reasonable to say the Earth uh, is the sun rotates around the Earth. That was the perfect, the, the, the reasonable assumption to take, even though it turns out that the Earth rotates around the sun. Um, so it's. I think the only reasonable position right now is Biden will win, but that's by no way a certainty. Well, predictions will stay predictions for now, I suppose, until we can get a little more information. Hopefully by November 10th, I believe, is the last day for the mail-in ballots to be counted, something like that. 7th, 8th, 9th, I heard in the debate, but also, once again, don't hold us to that because that's quoted from them. We don't know. But um, if you guys have any last thoughts, any information that you guys would like to share with us in terms of the upcoming election, any, I don't know, anything. <laughs> One quick thing, um, and that is a plug for um, a website on polling information. And this is the only website that I ever look at. Um, 
and it's called Real Clear Politics. One word, Real Clear Politics. Okay. And um, the reason I look at this website is um, it's an average. So what they do is they come up with an average of all the recent high quality polls, both nationally and in the critical states. So if you read new, you know, if you just read New York Times or Fox or CNN or whatever, they, you know, highlight their own polls, right? And so CNN says new CNN poll finds this and Fox says new Fox poll finds this. Well, that's not, you know, one poll in a snapshot is not super interesting or informative. What's informative is the average, right? Is what does the Fox poll, the CNN poll, the CBS poll, the NBC poll, what is the, you know, across all those polls on average, what's, what's happening? Um, and that's what real clear politics is great for. So I would just urge people like if you're if you're checking it, you know, like a crazy person five times a day, like I am for the next three weeks, um, go to that website and, and it's the best place to understand uh, what the polls are looking like uh, from now until Election Day. Fantastic. We'll make sure to link that somewhere in the description of the episode so that people can check that out. Um, yeah, I fully endorse real clear politics. Um, and on um, top of that, I mean, I, I, I hate to end on a slightly negative note, but maybe it's more uh, food for thought, namely that if Trump wins, that would be a major loss for the United States. But if Biden wins, it would only be a small loss for the United States. It's not a win for the United States right now. Um, and what I mean to say with that, without being too, too, too depressed here, is that um, the world needs, even if you're not American, the world needs a healthy, strong America. Um, we're facing major, major challenges in the world, and the United States can be a major contributor for good or for bad in, in dealing with those challenges. And that requires the United States to go back to a reasonable middle ground at the very least. And, and um, Biden is not going to take the United States there uh, because Biden just hasn't got the track record. So even if whoever wins, whether it's Trump or Biden in November, um, it's very, very important for America to keep on having this debate about where it wants to be in the future. Um, and it needs to be very critical of whoever is going to occupy the White House when it comes to dealing with um, poverty, inequality, um, and, and, and climate change. And because that is a fight that really needs to happen in the next four to eight years, otherwise it's going to be too late. Well, I think that about sums up everything we can think of, right? Only an hour and a half. I think, I think that's it. Now, uh, once again, thank you.